From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Good evening. This is The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani. Um, Richard Serrett is, as they say in the biz, on assignment. Uh, apparently he's uh, hiding out in Seattle, and he should be back sometime in the middle of the week, and he probably will join us uh, next next week for The Conspiracy Show. Welcome, everyone. As I said, my name is Victor Vigiani, and I'm here this evening to um, help us along and uh, try to figure out uh, what's going on on this strange planet? And uh, there are many, many strange things going on that we just cannot explain. And in th- this hour, we're going to, um, the latter part anyways, we're going to look at um, the more physical aspects of, of, uh, of our reality. And we're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. James Woodward. And he is an expert physics, physicist um, from the University of California. And he's going to talk to us about uh, exotic propulsion and how, um, his, in his book, he describes how to make uh, a stargate and how to travel in space without using conventional propulsion. And uh, Making Starships and Stargates is the name of uh, his book. And we're going to be talking with him about all of that. It's something that fascinates me to no end. Um, I'm sure most of you know that uh, uh, a passion for the UFO phenomenon, and that is something that's uh, learned over the last little while, that these craft somehow, in the way they travel, use very, very exotic propulsion systems that have nothing to do with fossil fuels or any other kind of conventional um, propulsion systems that we use here on this planet. But right now, we are going to be talking about something that's, uh, uh, I guess, a little bit more ethereal. There's no other way of explaining it. Our, our guest this evening is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a leading expert on the paranormal and the supernatural, the author of more than 45 books. My goodness, I can't even believe that. That's You must write all day long, Rosemary. And she includes that nine encyclopedias and hundreds of articles in print on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics. She possesses an exceptional knowledge of that field. And I guess what we're going to be doing this evening um, is is uh, talking to Rosemary about the whole idea of Jin Universe, what they are, and uh, we'll have to lean on her heavily because it's not something that I know a whole lot about, and I would imagine unless we reach down into other parts of our own lives that we might be able to identify other than the ones we live on a day-to-day basis, uh, we may have experienced it and not even known it. So um, I guess the first question is, what is a jinn, Rosemary? They are a race of beings who share the planet with us. And uh, in lore, they preceded us here. They were here on the Earth first and lost their place to us. We find similar stories concerning other kinds of beings like the fairies. Mm-hmm. They have uh, quite a few supernatural abilities. And throughout um, human interactions with them, we've had lots of problems with them. And some believe that many of the jinn have hostile intentions toward us uh, because they lost out to us and they feel that the earth ought to rightfully be theirs. I believe that they are very active in all of our paranormal experiences from hauntings to spirit possessions to abduction encounters, attachments and things like that. And in our culture, we don't really know it because uh, they really haven't been on our radar. 
I've studied them for quite a few years, and when I started considering that they might be very active in a lot of cases of unexplained activity, problems, and phenomena, a lot of things started to make sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that they have a major presence in what we call the ET abduction phenomenon. Uh, I believe that they are participating in this, whether or not there are a variety of beings participating, it's hard to say. Uh, the jinn are shapeshifters, and uh, so they could account for quite quite a few of the entities mm-hmm. that we put various labels on because they all look different, yet they could all be the same being. Mm-hmm. Before we get into that, and I, I might add that I spent close to 15 years um, very, very involved in the uh, in the uh, abduction phenomenon uh, taking a lot of uh, my cues from Jock, uh, Dr. John Mack. I spent a lot of time with him. So I've got a, a very um, you know, specific perception of what that situation might be in terms of people experiencing uh, that, kind of, um, that kind of phenomenon. But before we get into that, I, I want to ask you, um, in some of the, the, the writing that I, I read about this um, earlier uh, this, this week, a race of a supernaturally empowered beings. Now, that word empowered beings implies that they've obtained their, their, their empowerment from someplace else. Any sense of like where they, they drew these, this power from or their empowerment from? The accounts of the origins of the jinn vary and don't go into a, a lot of detail. For example, in uh, very old stories, they were said to be formed from the wind and that they gained dominion on the planet and fell into disfavor because they abused their own powers. Mm -hmm. In the Quran, the story is told about them uh, as being comprised of smokeless fire and that they were angels and um, made of pure spiritual light and there were jinn made of smokeless fire and then humans came along and uh, that uh, God told the angels to bow down to to humans, and the angels complied, but the jinn did not. Uh, the argument, their argument being they considered human beings to be inferior to them, and so therefore they would not do it, and they were cast out as a result of that. There are accounts of communications with jinn, and um, I've found that um, in many cases they don't communicate a lot their name means the hidden ones and mm-hmm. i think that um, the ones who do have hostile intent toward us which not all of them do that they don't want us to know exactly what they're up to and so they don't communicate very much but some of them have explained their abilities in terms of they've learned how to manipulate the natural laws uh, of the planet in ways that we have not they've learned how to use uh, magnetic energy and, and other kinds of forces that then give them these abilities that we call supernatural. Mm-hmm. They are, uh, in all accounts, masterful shapeshifters, and they seem to delight in taking forms that disturb human beings. Uh, it depends on their motives. If they uh, have a motive to uh, be sexually close to human beings, then they show up beautiful, looking like beautiful men and women. If they want to scare us, they might look like uh, a lot of cryptids out there, really strange creatures that defy explanation, that look like combinations of animals or combinations of humans and animals, uh, monstrous forms. Mm-hmm. 
it makes a lot of sense when you consider the core experiences that people have with beings that uh, throughout the ages human beings have had the same kinds of experiences but we tend to put different labels on them when in fact we might all be talking about the same thing. So you're saying it's, it's more or less culturally defined as how we perceive them? Yes, throughout history we've had different explanations for uh, beings. For example, let's take the fairies for example. Fairies have practically the same origin stories, the same folklore, same abilities, same attitudes that the jinn do. And in fact, when I started comparing the jinn to other kinds of entities, looking for similarities and differences, I found that there are so many similarities between fairies and jinn that you could say that they are one and the same. In fact, I've had uh, corroboration from especially many sources in the Middle East that the jinn really are responsible for all of these different forms of entities that we put different labels on. And yet our experiences with them are very consistent. They're the same. Uh, our ancestors were frightened of fairies. They had problems with them. They were shape-shifting entities. They didn't like people. They had uh, the same attitudes toward people and the same lore in terms of how they organized themselves. Uh, they were the hidden ones. They were here on the planet first. And uh, the stories are practically the same. And yet um, we think fairies are different from other kinds of entities, and, and they might not be. They, they might just be variations of the same thing. Yeah, I guess we're, we're pretty good here in the North American culture of categorizing all of these so-called entities. As to, as to, it's either this or that. There's no gray areas at all. And yet the whole realm of the paranormal is gray. It's very blurry, and it's constantly morphing and shape-shifting. It's just of its own accord. It's like Quicksilver. Researchers, including Valet and John Keel and uh, people who have attempted to look for the, you know, what I call the Oz behind the curtain, mm -hmm. have all said the same thing, that just as soon as you think you've got the answer, the whole thing shape-shifts and takes on some other form. It's like trying to take air out of wallpaper as you're applying it to the heat, just move someplace <laughs> else. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, you mentioned John Keel, and I've done a lot of uh, reading about him. The Mothman, could that have been some sort of representation of what you're talking about? Yes, and in fact, I've, I've talked about Mothman being a very good example of uh, a djinn. And uh, Mothman was very frightening to a lot of people, but uh, really didn't act out in uh, a hostile, evil sort of way toward people. In fact, it exhibited more curiosity. It acted like some creature who fell into our side of the interdimensional veil and got lost for a while. In fact, I think cryptids are um, very good cases for jinn because of, of their appearances. They behave as though they are interdimensional in nature, they disappear very quickly, and uh, I do believe that they, they live in their own realm, and uh, they fall through these doorways. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Keel talked about that a lot, too. Of course, too. yeah. We're speaking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of Jin, The Jin Universe, and we'll be back on the other side. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Keeping an eye on the New World Order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sennett. 
Well, as you know, um, if you've been listening to the last little while, this is not Richard Serrett. Richard is in Seattle at this point and doing some filming for his uh, television show. And I'm sitting in the big chair, and I'm talking to uh, the gin expert, author of Gin Universe, and her name is Rosemary Ellen Guiley. I want to address something before we get into the objection for now. I wanted to spend uh, a bit of time on that um, towards the end. But what I want to get your, your take on is there's always this, this kind of gap between uh, believers and non-believers. And I know that gap very, very well being involved in the UFO phenomenon. And it, it does upset me to a certain point. How do you deal with this gulf or do you at all deal with the gulf of uh, either uncertainty or incredulity, however you want to put it, or just outright cynicism? How, how do you deal with that? In, in your work? Does it propel you? Do you address the issue or you just let people believe what they want to believe and just go on with your work? My feeling is that uh, you, you come around to your beliefs through your own experiences. And I've always told people that uh, it's good to be skeptical. It's good to look for natural explanations first before you leap to the paranormal. And I believe me, I deal with a lot of people who want to just leap right to the paranormal right. when in fact there are natural explanations for things. But um, my work is really oriented to the how and why of people's experiences. Uh, I grew up believing in the paranormal. I had experiences like most people do uh, when I was young. Uh, Everybody has at least some sort of unexplained encounter or phenomena. So these other dimensions, these other realities were very natural to me. Yet I've, I've always looked for a grounded explanation first before uh, considering the paranormal. Over the course of my career, which is uh, spanning about 30 years now, I have to admit that my own boggle point has gotten pushed out considerably in terms of what I am able to take on board as what I would call a genuine experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do believe that people have been having these experiences throughout history and we've applied the best possible explanation that we can according to our time and place and our culture and other influences upon us. You're not going to convince a skeptic of anything on intellectual grounds only mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the paranormal. I think it's it's really a waste of time to to spend a lot of effort doing so. People who are firm disbelievers are going to be disbelievers no matter what evidence you pile up uh, until they have an experience that shakes up their worldview themselves. So uh, I'm content to let the skeptics be skeptical. I'm really more interested in finding out the how and why, looking for the patterns, the cross-cultural comparisons, the similarities uh, throughout the ages, and then coming up with with some explanations uh, and also some information that's of help to people. Many of these experiences are troubling, and especially when you get into uh, persistent unresolved hauntings, serial abductions, and things like that. People can have their lives torn apart by these experiences, and so they really do need some sort of solid footing to approach uh, their situations. Mm-hmm. Let's move into the area of the so-called ET abductions, or as John Mack puts it, those people called experiencers taken. In my experience, and, and once again, I've been involved in this for over 35 years, and there was a point when uh, I was very concerned about and involved in 
the abduction phenomenon, but because of the individuals that I dealt with and the, the amount of energy that they literally drew from me in, in their attempts to reconcile what was going on, I got to find out that they just wanted to talk about their experience. They didn't want to you know, make any money on it. They didn't want to you know, do any flag waving. They just wanted to find out what the heck was going on. And to the best of my ability, with my counseling background, I, I provided some assistance. But I found uh, in, in assisting the people, it literally sucked me dry, and I had to put it behind me. And then as a result of that, I moved into the more political aspects of this. Could you give me uh, an idea as to how you see the interrelationship of, of the kinds of things you research with the traditional notion of the extraterrestrial abduction experience? Is there a, is there a, a Venn diagram overlap or the distinct? How, how do you see that? Uh, human beings seem to have had abduction experiences throughout history at the hands of differently described entities. And here again, we might all be talking about the same entity shape-shifted into different forms. The motivations of these abductions are uh, varied, and uh, I think that this is a genuine experience. I, I don't think they take place necessarily in a physical reality, but some sort of bridge reality. You could call it the astral plane or an interdimensional area mm-hmm. uh, where the encounter actually takes place. What our ancestors called fairy abductions, for example, where you would be spirited away into the inner earth uh, to a place where time passed differently and you were in an alternate reality, mm-hmm. uh, is very similar to the E.T. abduction. I think we've just put a, a space-age interpretation on a very old phenomenon and uh, that the ships that materialize may not uh, be anything more than interdimensional projections. Uh, Some of the um, Middle Eastern uh, sources that I've consulted about the jinn have all told me that, uh, you know, the jinn just adapt themselves to what they think human beings are uh, going going to believe or participate in. And, um, you know, Fairies carrying you off to the inner earth doesn't play anymore, mm-hmm. but beings coming from, uh, yeah. allegedly coming from outer space does. It does, yeah. Well, it, my experience has been, uh, and it sort of is, is parallels what you've uh, just described, it, it, people talking to me about uh, being in their bedrooms and being lifted out of their bed by, you know, typically three uh, alien beings of some sort, and then uh, you're floating with these beings, and as you approach your bedroom wall or your wherever you are at the particular time, you're li- you literally move through the wall. You're, you're, you're vibrating at a certain level and it just allows you to pass through that wall. And then they float out someplace and get into this small-looking ship, and then you're sat down, you're perhaps stripped naked, and then you realize that the ship is easily ten times the size of what you think you moved into. Now, that, that sort of um, experience is is just mind-blowing. It's not something that you can explain. Um, so do you think that the, 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 the jinn have the capacity to alter your perceptions about what's going on with your, A, your physical body and where you are presently in existence in, on one of these ships or, or, or craft or whatever you want to call it? I, I do, and uh, I've talked to a lot of um, abductees myself And uh, the the stories all have similar underpinnings to them about how the experiences take place, their state of consciousness when they take place. Um, For many of them, it it occurs during stages of sleep, and they think they're dreaming 
but they're not dreaming, um, sort right. of those those kinds of conditions. And we are in some sort of altered reality. Um, they have um, side phenomena like um, uh, that's, that's comparable to what people experience when they have out-of-body projections. The atmosphere changes. Uh, there's a marked shift in the feel of the air, for example. There's there are often electrical qualities to the air, like um, thunderstorm kinds of energy. Uh, they have tingling sensations, buzzing. Um, I believe that these phenomena are uh, characteristic of interdimensional openings, that these sorts of things occur when these rips open up, these doorways uh, open, and these entities, uh, whether they're jinn or jinn and other beings, they seem to have the ability to manipulate um, these barriers to make openings so that they can come through. And so people are in a kind of a liminal um, bridge or zone uh, when these experiences take place. And uh, I think that that's uh, a characteristic that you can find in uh, all kinds of entity abduction experiences described throughout history. Mm-hmm. In your um, on your website, you've got a, a whole lot of really good, very basic questions about uh, the frequently asked questions, and you know such things as you know, do gin eat, and uh, do they sing or whistle? Uh, the, these kinds of things, I guess, those would be the questions that people would ask uh, on a, on a I don't know if you can call it superficial or not, but on a more basic um, uh, physical level. It's quite clear that the jinn actually experience uh, a a physical kind of of, of presence, and then they can also um, be portrayed or at least take the form of something um, non-corporeal. Is that a fair assessment? They seem to be able to do that and uh, to be physical and then at will be not physical. And the the uh, what we find in the ET uh, abduction phenomenon corresponds to that too, that uh, they pass through walls, but yet uh, they can grab hold of you. Uh, they seem to be solid and physical, and yet um, they aren't bound by the same um, rules that we are in our dimension. Uh, one of the dominant forms taken by Jin that we find in the uh, abduction phenomenon as well as uh, bedroom invaders and persistent negative hauntings and spirit attachments are shadow people. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a, a humanoid form that um, uh, frequently comes into people's bedrooms at night. They can be seen during the day as well. And uh, comes through the walls, uh, through windows, up through the floor, the ceiling. In other words, it, it materializes into the environment, and it has tangible mass. It uh, it's solid; you don't see through it. Uh, it blocks out light. It's blacker than black. And if they act out aggressively toward people, uh, you feel this entity grab hold of you but yet it can disappear in an instant. And I have um, uh, seen these entities myself, that uh, they can turn into mist or smoke uh, or just vanish into thin air, and yet uh, just uh, seconds before that they had tangible 
mass and whether that is um, uh, some manipulation of, of um, physical laws they are able to do or it's an effect that is created that they are some they can somehow manipulate us to to see that or hallucinate that mm-hmm. we don't know yeah um, I, I speak in, uh, in speaking with a lot of the um, experiencers that I have and I have a very close friend and even myself I'll, I'll, I'll share that with you of being in in, um, in bed and waking up and having this this incredibly tangible feeling of absolute terror and dread there's nobody there there's nothing that you can see uh, your heart is pounding you're um, in some cases sometimes you're you're actually frozen you can't move um, but you know that there's something there and I've, it, it, so many people have told me that it's just like Victor you can just sort of reach out and touch it but there's nothing there but you have this 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 sense of absolute terror um, what, what might be the explanation for that? Uh, you mean the terror? Well, yeah, just that. Or the paralysis. Well, let's talk about the terror first. Uh, the paralysis is, is something different. Just the the whole feeling of just there, there's something here. There's an entity here. Or there's somebody in the house or uh, what, whatever, and you're just afraid. And it's not a normal state of being. You know, it's not like you're paranoid about these things all the time. You just wake up and have this feeling of absolute terror. In the accounts that, and I've collected hundreds of these accounts, uh, in fact, well, I have uh, really over a thousand uh, now. I've been collecting these accounts for so long. Um, for, first of all, you're being invaded in your most vulnerable place at the most vulnerable time. Mm-hmm. We, we are very vulnerable in the dark when we're sleeping. Mm-hmm. And to be jolted out of that and confronted by something that you in, instinctively know immediately is not human uh, is uh, it evokes a visceral, immediate, instinctive, and very primitive uh, adrenaline reaction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that these entities uh, vampirize us in that way. That, that this is deliberate. Um, many cases, these people say that these beings radiate evil and hostility yeah. and malevolence. It's yeah. energy that literally pours off them. Yeah. And they want people to be frightened. Of course, uh, it's a mechanism for control. Yeah, uh, Rosemary, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, as okay. usual, <laughs> we always don't have enough time to, to, uh, to drill down uh, more deeply into this kind of stuff. But it is fascinating. I want to thank you for being with us. Is there anything else you'd like to mention about your book or your website? Well, ginuniverse.com is my site about the gin, and I've done a couple of books, The Vengeful Gin and The Gin Connection, uh, going into this in depth. And visionaryliving.com is my main website mm-hmm. where uh, I deal with a lot of the uh, other uh, topics that I've researched over the years. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, maybe we can do this again sometime in the future, as long as those um, little creatures don't interfere with uh, with our communication. They haven't bothered us tonight, at least I haven't felt it anyways. Yes, well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> Good. Thanks for being with us, and take care. Thank you. Good bye, night. Bye now. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, fascinating conversation. Um, I guess uh, the next element of, um, I guess, concern is something a little more tangible. And uh, we're going to be joined in a moment by Dr. James Woodward. And he's a professor emeritus of history and an adjunct professor of physics at California University in Fullerton. He's best known for uh, controversial physics and his proposals regarding exotic propulsion. And we're going to be joining 
Dr. Woodward, right after this break. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. This is The Conspiracy Show. This is not Richard Serrett. This is Victor Vigiani sitting in for Richard this day in, in the big chair and having a lot of fun. It's been a great evening, and uh, uh, we're going to move on into something a little bit more in the realm of physicality, but nonetheless um, just as bizarre. Uh, we're joined on the on the line by um, Dr. James Woodward. He's a professor of physics uh, and history at the California State University, and he has some very, very uh, specific ideas about uh, propulsion, exotic propulsion. And the name of his book is Making Starships and Stargates. And that is something of science fiction, but it seems that science fiction is now becoming science reality, slowly and ever-presently making its move and intruding on our reality to a point where you just might not recognize, um, you know, tomorrow from the next day or even then four days ago because of the rate of change that's going on. And in, in speaking with and listening to some of the presentations that uh, Dr. Woodward uh, has done, he is uh, he's pushing that envelope. Um, good evening, Doctor, and thanks for joining us on The Conspiracy Show. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, b- before we get into this whole idea of you know creating wormholes and and uh, you know star drives and and, and all of that, uh, could you just give our listeners some sort of idea? And we probably all know this, but from a uh, from the perspective of an expert, what are the traditional uh, methods of propulsion that that we that we are used to seeing used uh, here? Chemical rockets mm-hmm. taking. <clears throat> explosive materials, mixing them together in a combustion chamber and blowing a bunch of stuff out of tailpipe. I see. And also just basically fossil fuels and all that other kind of stuff that's uh, uh, that's used on a day-to-day basis. So you, you put something in the front end and it blows out the other end and, it, and somehow this thing moves fast. Well, sort of. Liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen are right. Right. commonly used yep. or similar hydrazine, various other chemicals. Right. Um, now, now, the idea that um, that, you're, that, you, that we're looking at, and I, I guess I got this from uh, one of the uh, the programs where I first um, encountered your, some of your work. Um, uh, Ancient Aliens was on on the television, and they have a graphic on there where you have there's an apple on a table. It's, it's a cartoonish kind of thing, and um, there's a finger that comes in and pushes the apple uh, and moves the apple. And the, the apple, uh, I guess, expresses a resistance to the finger, pushes back. Mm-hmm. And under traditional, um, I guess, thought, that apple is said to be, you know, either friction that, that does this or whatever. Uh, but that's not quite the case from what this particular program was, was, was talking about, that there are other forces acting upon that apple that make it resist the push of your finger. Now, what, what are those forces called? What you're referring to is the force of inertia. Uh, and in the context of something called Mach's principle, which was an idea that Einstein introduced, actually first named it Mach's principle in 1918, Uh, Einstein was convinced that there ought to be more of an explanation for why things push back when you push on them, even if they're unconstrained in an empty space or what have you. If you push on something, it pushes back on you, according to Newton's third law, with an equal and opposite reaction force. And that reaction force that it exerts on you when you try to accelerate it is the inertial resistance to motion. And 
and Einstein was convinced that inertia should be somehow related to gravity and should depend upon the distribution and motion of all of the matter in the cosmos. Uh, this became a highly contentious topic. He got involved in arguments with a fellow named Willem de Sitter about this and so on. Eventually he abandoned the attempts to do this, but it was revived in the 1950s by a fellow named Dennis Shyama and has been a topic of contention in gravitational physics off and on ever since. So what you're saying is that uh, somehow, in some way, shape, or form, uh, external forces far beyond uh, this planet and within the cosmos Mm -hmm. are, in fact, um, exerting some sort of uh, force uh, on on us right now, or on our, our physical. Oh, yes. Yeah, I could. I just have a really. <laughs> I just don't understand that. What, how, what do you? What, first of all, you call that force something? Is it something specific? Gravity. You call it gravity. I see. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's a gravitational action of the distant matter in the universe. Is it okay? Uh, on the other side of the break, uh, I, I want to ask you about um, your work in making that force somehow um, disappear. Um, I think that's a fantastic (laughs) idea that you've got going there. Um, Anyway, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are here to help you unpull that wool or the world from over your eyes because there are a whole lot of hidden truths that are out there that uh, most of us are just unaware of. We go about our daily work and just um, hammer those nails in and put that paper here and click that mouse there and we think the world is uh, what we see it is. But I've come to learn that that's not the way it is. And with us this evening to prove that point is uh, Dr. James Woodward. He's a professor emeritus of history and an adjunct professor in physics at California State University, Fullerton. And just before the break, we were talking about that uh, that, that force, uh, the, the inertial force that, that's out there. And uh, in, in, in your work, what you're attempting to do is, um, in a very on a minuscule level, but prove the theory that 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 force can somehow be either eliminate or minimize. Can you tell us what direction you're going in with that kind of work? Manipulate is probably the right word. Okay. Uh, Yeah, a number of years ago, actually more than I like to remember. (laughs) But a number of years ago, I blundered on to some theoretical work of another person, and it suggested the possibility of transiently altering the rest masses of objects uh, by taking advantage of particular aspects of interactions between inertia and local objects. It turns out that if you accelerate a local object and at the same time cause its internal energy to change, that the acceleration combined with the internal energy change causes the rest mass of the object to transiently change is significantly in a significantly larger way than you would normally expect. And what I've been doing since that time is working on getting the theory straightened out and doing some experiments to 
show that this is indeed the case by building little gizmos that produce minuscule amounts of thrust. So in, in essence, what you're doing is you're, you're operating this at a very small level, but you're obviously moving towards either conceptually or theoretically um, towards a, uh, the idea that this can be done in a grander scale. Oh, yes. It can be scaled. There's little doubt about that at this point. Uh, scaling it will no doubt prove more difficult and tortuous than one might like. Uh what I've discovered in the process of doing this is nothing is ever as simple as it appears at the first that it ought to be. Yeah. Uh, but yes, the effects involved should be scalable and it should be possible to produce thrust devices that don't need to lug along a lot of stuff to blow out of a tailpipe and produce drives that are suitable for operation in space and if everything scales very nicely uh, heavy lift is a possibility as well when you say when you use the word scale could you uh, kind of make bigger make bigger oh i see okay i see so yeah. you, i see so you're not you're not working at the minimal level scale you work at, i see yeah. scale it up okay um th- this idea of creating um uh, this 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 i guess this form of exotic propulsion um is there any or are there any other um that you're aware of any other people working in in this capacity right now that um you know sometimes you independently come up with the same idea do you know of anybody else who's working in the same direction there's a, by global standards, a very small community of people who are interested in this problem and foolish enough to invest effort and resources in pursuing it. Uh, the only other experimental program that I'm aware of is being run by a fellow named Sonny White at NASA Johnson. NASA Johnson, okay. The, the, the word NASA jumps out at me a lot. Um, if, if you could sort of categorize uh, this this kind of propulsion that you're that you're looking at, and, and some of the work that I've uh, and I'm not a physicist by any stretch of the imagination that could understand it, but my understanding, uh, if I could just sort of flip into the area of, of, of the UFO phenomenon for a minute, and some of the explanations that I've heard um, with re- with respect to how these things might move in our own atmosphere, um, and I'm told uh, by physicists that when this, these these so-called UFOs move within our own atmosphere, they have a way of moving at, first of all, extreme uh, rates of, uh, rates of uh, acceleration, uh, up to 12,000, 15,000 miles an hour uh, within our own atmosphere, and they don't burn up, or they don't even cause um, with what we'd normally call a sonic boom. And I've been told by John McDonald, um, uh, rather in his books, that somehow these craft can move the air out of the way so that they A, don't burn up, and B, don't create a sonic boom. Um, what kind of propulsion would they be using, ostensibly, would, would you guess? They're using something substantially more exotic than the sort of thing that I am presently fooling around with. The sort of behavior that you're talking about and is commonly ascribed to these things, mm-hmm. whether they're real or not, it involves being able to manipulate inertia to the point where you can make something inertia less. If you can make something inertial, you can 
cause it to accelerate to pretty much any speed you want with minuscule amounts of energy and force and so on. And presumably, if you've got something that's capable of, through some sort of a field effect, rendering the object inertialess, it would also render the immediate environment inertialess as well. So if it were traveling through the atmosphere, the air, <clears throat> as it came into proximity of the vehicle, would be rendered inertialess, and it wouldn't create friction and cause the thing to burn. I see, I see. Um, the, the broader aspects of, of what you're um, working on in, in terms of the the politics behind it, uh, are, do you experience any kind of resistance from outside um, either governmental or political forces that that are um, sort of saying, you know, Mr. Mr. Woodward, you better just sort of cool your jets, so, so to speak? <laughs> in other words, is there a vast government conspiracy to try and stop work of this sort? <laughs> No, you said no. You, you, okay. No, I, I had to ask that question because no, that's okay. I understand. Yeah. It's the title of the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Well, that's not necessarily the reason that I asked, but but because of of what I've I've uh, read about the the so-called UFOs, is that um, if if for whatever reason this new propulsion system or any new anti-gravitic electromagnetic or even what you're talking about whatever the new propulsion systems are, it will render fossil fuels um, basically useless in, in terms of propulsion. And that has uh, many government officials and oil barons very, very worried. Uh, do you do you uh, look at some of the work that you're doing as leaning in that direction and, and, um, and possibly um, being taken up as serious and a threat to the oil industry? No, I don't think the oil industry has anything to do with this, to be perfectly frank. Mm. The chemical rocket community, I'm sure, looks askance at this sort of activity. This would, you know, at the point where this becomes demonstrated and commercially viable and all the rest of that, there will be political and commercial forces put in play that that are not presently in play. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's going to be the chemical rocket industry. That's not going to be the, Fossil the oil barons yeah. or anybody yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, when you look at it in, um, in the starkest of terms, you know, putting putting a man on top of a firecracker and, and, and blasting it up into space and doing what they do uh, through NASA, it, it's pretty archaic. And it, there seems to be some sort of, um, I guess, uh, idealization that this form of fuel or form of propulsion will soon end. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that what you're working on just might be something that uh, that NASA just might be interested in. You could get a tap on the shoulder and say, listen, we, we like what you're doing, um, and here's a whole bushel full of money. Do, do you see that in the in the offing? <laughs> uh, to be perfectly frank, no. <laughs> no. Why did I know the answer to that question? <laughs> let, me, let, let me explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody in the space business understands that chemical rockets are not ultimately the solution to access actually even really ideally to low earth orbit much less the solar system and when you're talking about interstellar interstellar travel uh, realistically speaking you're talking about seriously exotic types of propulsion mm-hmm. sort of thing you find in the last few chapters of the book that I published a year a little bit ago mm-hmm. Uh, the situation that you find is that the physics involved in this is sufficiently novel and 
sufficiently, how should I put it, out of the mainstream. Right. That doesn't mean that it's not good physics. It just means that it's not part of the mainstream view. It's sufficiently out of the mainstream that age big government bureaucracies are not going to sink a lot of money into this. They are sinking some money into this. The NASA, as I say, is funding a small effort by Sonny White at NASA Johnson, mm -hmm. and part of the project that he's doing is looking for a way to produce serious space-time distortions, mm -hmm. though the theoretical basis on which he's pursuing things is a little different than the one that I think is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, but the government is putting some money into this, and it's public. There's nothing secret about it and all that. He's been on TV and of course, yeah. in the media and all that. So, you know, uh, it appears as though there is a change taking place in what's reasonable and what's acceptable. I think that there's a very slight shift away from just simply automatic rejection of this sort of work to very, very careful yeah. uh, consideration of possibly putting at least some modest resources into it. Uh, as far as putting resources into the work that I'm doing, the way if your listeners are interested, mm. they can do that is to get on the website of the Space Studies Institute, SSI.org, and what they will discover is that the Space Studies Institute has recently put together an exotic propulsion initiative on their website. And if you go to the website, they have a link to where you can buy the book. And the book's royalties go almost exclusively to support this project, to support the Space Studies Institute's initiative, which is mm -hmm. broader than just the work that I do. Yeah. Uh, Sounds or fascinating. They can, join, they can join the Space Studies Institute, mm. preferably as a senior associate, for $100 a year, and some of their money will go into supporting research. Mm -hmm. uh, or they can donate directly to the Exotic Propulsion Initiative. Uh, so it's possible for people to help out with this, but uh, NASA coming along with a large amount of money or some other government agency or something like that it's probably premature for that mm -hmm. at this point. Be when yeah. Before I let you go, I just want to get uh, your uh, one last comment on you uh, quickly, if I could, regarding the part of the name of your book. You know, you, the name of the book is, is very, you know, making starships and star gates right. um, and wormholes and all of that. It, it, it's that 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 to me is an absolutely fascinating line of pursuit that we might want to have you back on. It, it, do these things worm called wormholes can they be created or the, do they just exist in, in nature? <laughs> Depends on who you talk to. There are some, there are some many physicists who are aware of what's going on in this area would tell you that they that wormholes presumably are naturally existing objects at the scale of quantum fluctuations of space-time, and that the way in which to create a so-called traversable wormhole is to find a way to with utterly minuscule tweezers, get your hands on one of these naturally occurring wormholes and then find some way of ablating it up to macroscopic dimensions. I don't think that's a reasonable way to go. Okay. Uh, well, I, well let, we, uh, we've just about run out of time. I just want to give you a chance to... Uh, 
you know, plug your book, uh, your book, where can you get it, and et cetera, et cetera. It's available on Amazon or probably through most booksellers. It's published by Springer Verlag, which is a highly reputable major scientific publisher. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not an obscure thing that's self-published, and you have to scrounge real hard right. to find it. Right. And you'll find it on the SSI website, too. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Woodward. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and maybe we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. A pleasure here, too. Good night. Good night. Fascinating, no doubt about it. Anyways, that's about it for the Conspiracy Show this week. Uh, go to my website, Zeland Communication, and also go to Richard, richardserrett.com, uh, for more information about what you've heard tonight. Richard will be back next week to unveil more of the marvelously incredible world of the hidden truth and otherwise concealed reality here on the Conspiracy Show. Just keep in mind the words of our friend George Orwell. In this world of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. My name is Victor Vigiani, and let's talk again soon.